Well, good morning. Welcome to King's Cross. It's good to be uh, with Christ's church and sing and pray. There's so much to be thankful for and sing about and also much to pray for. Uh, obviously, I, I prayed for uh, what's happened in Syria and Turkey, and I, I just want to give you all a way to be praying and even to, to give if you feel led. Our church partners with a denomination of churches that does many, many things, one of which is it has a, a disaster relief organization called Send Relief that is one of the biggest and most effective disaster relief organizations in the world. Uh, and whenever something like this happens, there's some of the first people on the scene giving and helping and serving. So through our giving to our denomination, we already... Uh, partner with Send Relief, but if you're interested in doing that, I, I would encourage you, not just if you're interested, I would encourage you to pray uh, and ask the Lord how you ought to respond to what's going on uh, in this other part of the world. And if you would like a way to give, you can go to sendrelief.org, and it'll be very intuitive from there. There's big links that you can click on to give money directly to that relief work uh, in Syria and Turkey. We're in the Gospel of Mark again today, chapter 12, focusing on just a few verses, 35 through 37. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been looking at these encounters that Jesus has in the temple in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 11, he led his disciples and the crowds following him up to Jerusalem, to the capital city of Israel and of God's kingdom, and he, he openly, for the first time publicly, makes a claim to be the Messiah, the Savior, the King of God's people. And this lands him squarely in one conflict after the next. As one person, one group after another, continues to question him, to try to trick him, to try to track, uh, trap him. Uh, we saw a question about his authority, a question that tried to trip him up on political grounds, one that tried to trip him up on theological grounds. Last week, we finally saw a friendly question. Uh, but nonetheless, we see all these questions and one after the other, and Jesus answers them all with wisdom and skill until we read in verse 34, no one dared to question him any longer. Uh, the picture that I get of, is, is of Jesus going up to play pickup basketball on the playground and other kids start challenging him one-on-one, -on -one, and he just beats every single kid one after the other after the other until finally he's looking around and everybody's just staring at him like, no, nobody wants to challenge you anymore because we know that you're going to beat us and make us look silly in the process. And then we pick up our text for today, verse 35. And now, after answering all these questions, Jesus assumes the role of the questioner. He says, I am going to ask you all a question. This question, which no one explicitly answers in the text, serves three purposes in Mark's narrative. First, it advances the conflict. Uh, as soon as Jesus gets to Jerusalem, conflict starts. In fact, before he got to Jerusalem, conflict started with the religious leaders. And we've said that Jesus is not afraid of this conflict. In fact, he keeps it moving. As soon as the, question die, the questioning dies down, he takes another shot as if to say, no, let's, let's keep going. Let's keep the conflict going. Second, this question seemingly gains him ground against his opponents. Again, it's clear that his opponents are the religious leaders. And at this point, the crowds, the regular people in Jerusalem seem to be leaning in the direction of Jesus. Uh, the re religious leaders didn't like the claims of Christ or what they meant for them. But all the people, it says, are amazed. They're awed by Jesus. And at least for now, popularity seems to be turning in his direction. The third function of this text is that it reveals something about Jesus. His question and the psalm that he turns to in asking it reveals something true about himself. That's what we're going to see in this morning's sermon. Mark 12, 35 through 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked... How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And a large crowd was listening to him with delight. This is the word of the Lord. Why do the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? That's the question that Jesus poses. He takes another shot at the scribes. These guys are the theological, doctrinal authorities of the day, and he questions, undermines their theological uh, faithfulness and precision. But it wasn't just the scribes who thought of the Messiah as the son of David. In fact, this was a very popular term for the Messiah. All the people talked about him as the son of David, and not for no reason. King David was the greatest king in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. God used him to usher in a kingdom that flourished in every way. It flourished spiritually, it flourished materially. And God called David a man after his own heart. And he promised to ensure that there would always be a king from David's line on the throne. In fact, in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, God explicitly makes this promise about the glorious reign of David's son. And over time, that promise came to be associated with this messianic title, Son of David. And so the scribes and the people and even the folks who went up to Jerusalem with Jesus, remember, who went ahead of him and started shouting things like, Blessed is he who comes in the name of David. All of them thought of the Messiah as David's son. But Jesus calls this into question. He quotes a psalm, the first verse of Psalm 110. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus and his contemporaries believe the psalm was written by David himself. It contains two uses of the word Lord. If you were to flip back in your Bible to the Old Testament, you would see that the first use of the word Lord is in all capital letters. Whenever you see this in the Old Testament, it's a way of rendering the personal covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses back in Exodus, Yahweh. So David is saying, Yahweh, the Lord of Lords, the Creator God, said something to my Lord. That second use of of Lord is just regular old Lord. So who, if David's writing this psalm, who is David's Lord? Who could possibly be the king of the one who was the king himself? The Messiah. What does this teach us about the Messiah? Well, this promise in Psalm 110 is a promise to the Messiah. The creator God will bring all his enemies under his feet. But more importantly, for the sake of Mark 12, it tells us that the Messiah is greater than than King David. How can the Messiah be David's son, Jesus is asking, when David himself recognized the Messiah as his superior? Mark has made it utterly clear to us, his readers, and Jesus now has claimed openly to be himself the Messiah. And so whatever he ascribes to the Messiah, he's ascribing to himself. Jesus is saying, the Messiah is greater than King David, and I am that Messiah. I am greater than King David. Jesus here is com- completely subverting the understanding of the people. What did they expect out of a Messiah? They expected a great human leader. David was a great leader. He was a great king. God used him to do really great stuff, but at the end of the day, he was just another human. And his son, the Messiah, would be like him. Another great king descended from his line, who God would use to do amazing things, who would rule like David, and who eventually would die like David. But before that, people believed he would bring national renewal. That was the second great expectation the people had for the Messiah. He would be a king like David, and like David, God would use him to usher in national restoration and renewal. Remember, the people are under Roman occupation and oppression. 
And so they're longing and praying for a deliverer to come and rescue them and free them from Rome. And that's what they believe the Messiah would do. But Jesus totally subverts that understanding of the Messiah. The Messiah, he says, is not a mere human. He's something more. He's not just David's son. He's God's son. He's not just David's son, though according to his lineage he is that. He is a descendant of David, but he's also so much more. He's the son of God. He's God himself in human flesh. As we've said since way back in the beginning of Mark, he is the divine human king of God's kingdom. And if the Messiah is greater than King David, presumably the kingdom he's bringing is also greater. If you're a sports fan at all, you know likely that this week there was a monumental moment in sports history. LeBron James broke the all-time NBA scoring record, 38,390 points in his career. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had previously set the record in 1984 and added to it for another five years, and LeBron broke it on Tuesday night. And of course, this just adds fuel to the seemingly never-ending goat debates in the NBA. Who is the greatest of all time? Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron? Some say LeBron, some say Michael. Here's my my only contribution. I really don't have a dog in this fight. This is really just a sermon illustration. My only contribution is Jordan won six NBA championships. LeBron just won four. Presumably, if King James, as we call him, uh, was truly greater than Michael, he also would have started a kingdom that was greater than Michael's. He would have started a dynasty that was greater and won not just four, not just six, but seven or eight or nine rings. Instead, he's only got four. And by the way, he had to bounce around to three different kingdoms to get those four. If he were truly greater, he would bring a greater kingdom. The Messiah is greater than King David. And because he's greater than King David, he's going to bring a greater kingdom. What did the people expect? National renewal, national restoration. They wanted Israel to be restored to her former greatness. But God's plans for the Messiah are so much greater than that. He wouldn't simply renew Israel. He would renew the entire world. He wouldn't simply renew Israel to her former greatness before she fell to Rome and before that to Assyria and Babylon and Greece. He would restore the entire cosmos to its former greatness before it fell to sin and to death. Jesus subverts the people's understanding of the Messiah. On what grounds does he do it? On the grounds of Scripture. Now, I want to do something for the next several minutes that I don't normally do and wouldn't recommend for most people preaching. It's not weird or anything. Uh, Usually, it's best for a sermon or any kind of talk to have one main idea. And you might get there in different ways. You might have three different subpoints, or you might do a series of questions and answers or tell a story or something. But you really want to tell people what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. And if you do that well on their way out, if you were to grab five people and say, what was that sermon about? At least four of them would be able to basically tell you the same thing. Uh, but I actually want to push a hard pause on this sermon's main point for a digression. At the risk of you all only leaving with one of these two big ideas in mind, I want to introduce a second train of thought and ask, what did Jesus assume to be true about the Bible? This passage, just very quickly, in what would otherwise maybe be considered just a throwaway statement if we believe the Bible made those, tells us two extremely important assumptions that Jesus made about the Bible. And they're such important assumptions that if he did not have them, he would not be able to get this from Psalm 110. And, and it's possible 
that some of us don't read the Bible with these two main assumptions. And if that's true, then we're not getting what we should be getting out of the Bible. So, first, Jesus assumed the Bible is divinely inspired. Jesus assumed the Bible is divinely inspired. I get this from what, again, would seem like a throwaway comment. Verse 36, when introducing the quote from Psalm 110, Jesus says, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, by the Holy Spirit? It means that this psalm, and we would say all of Scripture, has not one but two authors. It has a human author, in this case David. It also has a divine author, the Holy Spirit. Unless you think this is just an isolated instance of this kind of comment, there are two really important New Testament passages that actually give us a sort of concise doctrinal layout of what this means. One from the Apostle Peter, one from the Apostle Paul. So in 2 Peter 1.20, Peter writes, Above all, know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Don't get caught up in his use of the word prophecy as if it only refers to what we call the prophetic books of the Bible. Prophets were just people who spoke on God's behalf to God's people. So Peter is referring to all of the biblical authors as prophets. And what he says is that they spoke from God. That is, their words were actually God's words. And they spoke them and wrote them as they were, quote, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we have Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. He writes, all scripture is inspired by God. That's where we get the word inspired. Now, the root word of inspired or inspiration is spirate, which probably is not a word that you've used this week. Uh, It comes from the Latin word spiratus, which means to breathe. Now, that's significant because the the person in the Trinity who we say does, does the spirating or breathing out of scripture is called the Holy Spirit. And the word spirit in the Bible, both in the Hebrew and the Old Testament and the Greek and the New Testament, could also be translated wind or breath. In other words, you, you get the picture here. The picture is that, and some of your Bibles may even translate it this way, that God the Holy Spirit is breathing out these words. That, that actually the, the breath of God breathes out the words of Scripture. The Bible is God's very words, all of it is breathed out by God, the Spirit. As God's breathed out words, the Bible, Paul goes on, is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's inspired word, and there are some important implications of this. One, if the Bible is God's word, and God cannot lie, then the Bible must be true, totally true. And if the Bible is God's word and God is the ultimate authority of of the entire universe, then the Bible must be authoritative for our lives. Here's how we summarize this teaching in our church's statement of faith. The Bible, God's written word, is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. It has truth without any mixture of error as its content. As God's written word, it is the full and final authority for life, And is useful to the believer for teaching and training in righteousness. Second key assumption that Jesus has about the Bible is that it's about him. Now, Psalm 110 would not be interpreted by any critical scholar in 2023 as being about Jesus. 
There's not a single one who would say that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. All critical biblical scholars in our day would say Jesus misinterpreted Psalm 110. They would say it wasn't even written by David. It was written hundreds of years after him. And whoever wrote it wasn't a king. He wrote it for the king. And so the first Lord is God and the second Lord is just whoever the king was at that point. But what is Jesus' assumption? He assumes it's about the Messiah. He says this psalm is about me. And it's not just certain specific passages in the Bible that are about Jesus. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, a couple of his followers were walking down the road somewhere, and he appears to them, and in some way he's disguised. Uh, I like to picture him as wearing like those little glasses and nose and mustache thing. And he shows up to them, and he's like, hey, guys, why, why are you moping? Like, why are you so sad? And they're like, don't you know this guy, Jesus? We thought he was the Messiah, but he died, so I guess he wasn't the Messiah. And he responds to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is in Luke 24, by the way. He says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? And then Luke writes, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Moses and all the prophets is shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Luke is saying, in other words, that the entire portion of the Bible that we think isn't about Jesus, because it was all written hundreds of years before he was born, is about Jesus. The entire Old Testament is about Christ. And Jesus says the same thing in John 5. He confronts some Pharisees and he says, You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Scripture is divinely inspired, and it's about Jesus Christ. You might say that the Bible is the word of God the Father, written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and pointing to God the Son. It's the word of God the Father, written through the inspiration of God the Spirit, pointing to God the Son. Now, what do we do with that? How do we apply these two assumptions of Jesus? First, the assumption that the Bible is divinely inspired. We must believe and submit to Scripture. Many, maybe all of us, operate with the very post-enlightenment idea that we come to belief in something through understanding. We come to belief through understanding. So we, we kind of position ourselves as standing over top of the Bible, and we want to pin it down and take it apart and study it and, and see if it comports with other ideas that we have. And if it does, then we'll say, yeah, maybe once I've come through understanding, maybe I'll believe it. Maybe I'll trust it. But that was not the conviction of the first like 1,700 years of Christians. They didn't stand over top of the scriptures trying to pin them down. They sat underneath the scriptures. They let the Bible read them. They let the Bible pull them apart and put them back together. In fact, there was a a maxim of Augustine and other early church theologians. They said the Christian life is faith seeking understanding. Not understanding seeking faith, but faith seeking understanding. Do you believe that the Bible is true? Do you believe that it's God's word? And do you believe that even when you don't believe it? In other words, like when, when you struggle to believe it, are you praying, I believe, help my unbelief? I know a lot of people, friends, who in just the last several years have lost confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture because they've come across some podcast or Instagram influencer or YouTuber who has raised you know, issues with apparent problems, so-called problems in the Bible. And I just want to ask, do you think that no one for the last 2,000 years came across those apparent problems? 
Like, do you think that, that Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin and Luther and Edwards and C.S. Lewis and thousands upon thousands of men and women, many of whom are much smarter than you and me, never came across these apparent problems in Scripture? And yet it didn't shipwreck their faith. Better, when we come across apparent problems in Scripture, to assume that there's a solution somewhere in the 2,000 years of resources of church history and theology that we have, than to just throw out the authority of, Christ, of, of scriptures at the first sign of trouble. Now, not only must we believe scripture, we must submit to it. How often do you consciously live in a way that you would prefer not to live because the Bible tells you to? How often do you do things that you would rather not do or not do things that you would rather do because you're submitting to scripture? When was the last time you changed your mind about something through reading of the scriptures? Guys, Paul did not say in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for warm fuzzies and good vibes and the positive encouragement that you need to get you through the day. He said it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Are you letting yourself be taught by the scriptures? Are you letting yourself be rebuked by the scriptures and corrected? Are you letting yourself be trained in righteousness? Second assumption that the Bible is about Jesus. What are we looking for in the scriptures? Now, the second that I say the Bible is truth without any mixture of error, many of you may have run mentally to questions of scientific accuracy, historical precision, and there's a time and a place for those conversations. But I just want to say the flip side of the coin is that the Bible is not a science book. It never claims to be that. The Bible is not a history book. And there's a whole bunch of other things that the Bible isn't. It isn't a moral guidebook just to give you instructions for how to live. It isn't a roadmap to a life of blessing. It isn't a weapon to hit unbelievers over the head with. And it isn't about you. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is a library of divinely inspired writings, all pointing to the good news of what God has done and is doing in Jesus Christ, namely saving a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Is that what we're looking for when we come to Scripture? If you're in a discipleship group here, you know that one of the weekly homework questions and group discussion questions is, where do you see Christ in the gospel in this passage? But we've been studying Genesis for the last two semesters. And some of you may have first come to that question and thought, where do I see Christ in this passage? Nowhere. I see him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't see him in Genesis. My hope, my prayer is that as you've worked together in your groups to exercise those Christ-centered Bible-reading muscles, that you have started to see Jesus on every page of Scripture. Now, there are different ways and different methods of doing this, but I want you to hear me say, I am more concerned that you find Jesus in Scripture than how you find him there. Now, some of my seminary professors would cringe if they heard me say that, but if you read the New Testament and its use of the Old Testament— to me, there doesn't seem to be a clear method or pattern for this is how you find Christ in the Old Testament. It seems like they were just obsessed with finding him everywhere in the Old Testament. So I'm much more concerned that you find him there than how you find him there. Why does this matter? It matters because no other way of reading the Bible can lead us to salvation. No other way of reading the Bible can lead us to life. Jesus said, you pour over the scriptures because you think you'll find life in them, but they testify about me. He says, I am the one who gives life. Okay, that was a long detour. Uh, 
we should read the Bible as the word of God the Father written through the inspiration of God the Spirit about God the Son. And now back to the main point. Doing so will subvert our understanding of who Jesus is. Just as Jesus used the scriptures to subvert the common understanding of who the Messiah was 2,000 years ago, he's still using the scriptures today to upend our understandings of who he is. Who do we think Jesus is? If we were to survey the average American, what kinds of answers would we get? I bet we would get a lot of Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was a good moral teacher. He taught people to do good things, to love their neighbors as themselves, to do unto others as you would have them do under you. He modeled generosity and hospitality and charity and and self-sacrifice. And you should model your life after him. They would say he wasn't God. And many would say he probably never even claimed to be God. That was probably added in by his followers hundreds of years later. But he was a good moral teacher. In recent years, I've seen a new one arise. Jesus is basically your life coach. He's like an accessory who improves your life. People might not say this explicitly, but it's certainly how they treat him. He's just one more thing along with the way you eat, the way you exercise, the way you work, that helps you maximize your life and potential. In the last several years, there have been a number of high-profile celebrity entertainers who seem to be adopting this approach. I don't want to render judgment on somebody's faith from far away, so I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but it is interesting to me how some of these folks talk about Jesus. I read an interview not long ago with Travis Barker, famous drummer from Blink-182, Uh, He's married to a Kardashian. He's rising as a music producer, and he was asked about his faith. He said he grew up with Catholic parents, but they weren't super strict. And then he goes on, or the article goes on, to say maybe this isn't a surprising thing to learn about a guy who's had a pair of praying hands inked on the side of his head since he was 19. But Barker says he's, quote, really close with a couple pastors and adds, yeah, I'm like Christian now, as if this is something he's just realizing talking about it. Are you religious? Yeah, I'm, I'm like a Christian now. I'm friends with a couple pastors. Maybe that's genuine, but does that sound like the sort of pick up your cross and die to yourself and follow me discipleship that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Mark? It sounds a lot more like, yeah, this, this helps make my life a little bit better. Some people think of Jesus as simply an affirming friend. Jesus loves me, which means he affirms everything that I say and do. Several years ago, The comedian Russell Brand hosted on his talk show members of the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, If you don't know them, they're basically famous for hate speech. And it was a profoundly interesting and hilarious and also really sad interview because, in, in my estimation, neither one of these parties has a view of God that even remotely approximates the picture that we get in Jesus Christ. These guys from Westboro Baptist basically are, are worshiping what seems to be a God who is primarily focused on hating people. And then Russell Brand tries to correct them. And at one point he says, it seems to me, from what I've read of Jesus, or at least what people have explained to me about him, that his main message was definitely about tolerance, love, truth, beauty, and acceptance. Okay, love, truth, beauty, yeah, but were were tolerance and acceptance definitely the main message of Jesus? Some other people still think of Jesus as a sort of spiritual guru. He was no different, essentially, than Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi. Just an enlightened soul to help us get to the creator spirit who reveals itself through all kinds of religions. Now, these are all generally positive, but there are more negative takes on Jesus, aren't there? Many people would say Jesus was not a good moral teacher. He was a bad moral teacher. It's interesting how 50 or 20 or even 10 years ago, a lot of people rejected Christianity because they thought it was too morally uptight. Like, live a little, guys. 
And recently, you hear people make the exact opposite claim, that Christianity is immoral and hateful, that Jesus was a bad moral teacher, or in a similar vein, that he was the founder of an oppressive and repressive religion. No, Russell Brand, his main message wasn't one of tolerance and acceptance. He founded an oppressive and repressive religion. And then some people think of Jesus as a a sort of provincial American deity. A friend of mine worked for a long time for a missions organization and did some work uh, with with Muslims in the Middle East. And he said that one of the main hurdles to presenting the gospel to Muslims is is they have a very high and rigorous moral standard. uh, And they associate Christianity with America. Like it's an American religion in their mind. And so what they see of America is what comes through on TV, media, social media, the decadence and the, the... sin and and deviation from America, and they associate Christians and Christianity with that. Christianity is an American religion. And then there there are people at home who also think of Jesus as an American God. They don't associate him with the decadence of American society, but no less with with the stars and stripes to some degree. We just have to ask, do any of these portrayals of Jesus match up with the way that he is presented in the Bible? Do any of them match up with the way that he presented himself? Jesus used scripture to subvert the understanding of the Messiah carried by those around him, and the scriptures are still doing that 2,000 years later. So who is Jesus really? Who does the Bible tell us that Jesus is? Let me answer that with a story. In the beginning was God. Indeed, before the beginning was God. And this God is what we call a, a trinity one being, one essence, and three persons who share in this one essence. And this God, in his very essence, is love. And he's overflowing with joy and with life. And out of the overflow of his joy and life, for the sake of love, he created a world. And the crown glory of that world was human beings. Humans were created with a, a unique capacity to have a relationship of love with God. We were made simply to drink in out of the overflow of God's joy and life. And tragically, humans rejected him. They chose to turn inward to themselves rather than turning outward and upward to God. And in doing so, they plunged themselves headlong into death and sorrow. And the eternal God of love, because he is perfectly just, would have been totally within his rights to leave them all over, give them all over to themselves, and condemn and judge every last one of them. But he didn't. Instead, he started the greatest search and rescue operation in history. And God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth. He took on a human nature. He was born of a virgin. He grew up in humble means and around 30 years old started telling people things like, the kingdom of God is here in me. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to save the very human beings who so tragically rejected him. He did so by living perfectly as their substitute, by dying on the cross to bear God's wrath against their sin, by rising on the third day victorious over sin and death. He ascended into heaven where he is seated now at the right hand of God the Father, reigning over all things, and he will come to earth again to judge the living and the dead. That is who Jesus claimed to be. That is who the scriptures tell us that he is. He's not an affirming friend or a good moral teacher. He's not an American God or the founder of an oppressive religion. He is the divine human king of God's kingdom. Do you see why this matters so much? If Jesus is who he claimed to be, we owe him everything. 
We owe him all of our worship, all of our affection, all of our obedience, all of our love. We owe him everything. If he is who he claimed to be, he was and still is the most important person in the world. And we should treat him as such. If he wasn't, then we owe him nothing. Like you, you can't have a sort of meh response to Jesus. Like it doesn't work that way. He either is who he claimed he was or he isn't. C.S. Lewis made a famous argument about dealing with the reality of who Jesus was and is on his own terms. It's in the book Mere Christianity. He wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And here we could add, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a life coach or as an affirming friend or any of the other things that we mentioned. That, Lewis goes on, is what we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, his claim to divinity, his claim to be one with the Father, to die on the cross for people's sins, he says this man would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus, Lewis says, if we take him at his word about himself, was either a lunatic or a horrible liar, or he was Lord and God. Let's get rid of all this patronizing nonsense about all the other stuff. And of course, it's the Bible's teaching, and it's my firm conviction that he was and is Lord and God. And maybe you don't believe that yet. Like maybe you, you hear the story about God being this tri-personal God of love who created the world sheerly out of the overflow of his love and joy and goodness and about him pursuing us at infinite cost to himself even though we rejected him. And you don't think it's true. And, and maybe that story isn't true. But wouldn't it be beautiful if it were? Would there be anything more beautiful than Jesus being who he says he is?